0: and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Our guest today is Bobby Bird, poet, essayist, and publisher. Since 1978, he and his wife, novelist Lee Merrill, have lived in El Paso, Texas, where they run Cinco Puntos Press. Bobby has received a number of honors for his poetry, including a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. He has a number of books of poetry, including his most recent, Otherwise My Life is Ordinary.
1: Bobby, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm glad to be here, John. This is fun.
0: Your poetry is so rich, and there's so many aspects of it that we can talk about today, uh, including how Zen Buddhism and that practice has figured into your work and the influence of your home in the borderlands uh, in El Paso, the borderlands of Texas and Mexico, for instance. But before we get into some of that, I want you to take us back a bit. Um, Before we chatted today, you had asked me to read an essay from your latest book, which I mentioned, Otherwise My Life is Ordinary, saying that it could help maybe set the stage for our conversation. It's an absolutely beautiful essay, and essentially is about why and how you became a poet. And in the essay, you talk a lot about growing up in Memphis, uh, the African-American culture and music of that time and place, uh, also growing up with two strong women in your life after your father tragically died in World War II. Such formative experiences. Uh, The book itself, I would say, is even kind of reflective and nostalgic in, 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 some ways. Right. So, um, anyway, maybe you could talk a little bit about growing up in the South the way you did and, and specifically in Memphis and how those experience, how those experiences shaped your future. Right.
1: You know, when my daddy died, I was, I was three, I guess. So my memories of my father are nil. So we grew up in my, you know, my older brother and sister, uh, knew mm-hmm. him and, remembered him and that's how I learned about him mostly and through my mom but you know so what happened to us was um, uh, my mother had to you know back in the uh, 40s and then the 50s she had to earn a living and to do so she had uh, she started selling real estate her father was a realtor and so to do that to go out uh, uh, we and this is the south so we, uh, a, a woman, Darthula Baldwin, which uh, I, when I was a kid, I could never say Darthula, I could only say Tula, so she became Tula for all of us, and she lived with us, and she was, you know, a big part of our life. Uh, um, um, I had a, in one of my earliest books, I had a long sort of elegy for her, uh, so, you know, we, we, you know, my mother was... Sort of became the breadwinner, so Tula had to become more or less the um, mother figure at home, and, and which she did. And, and actually, my mother and her, Tula became very, very close friends, which they couldn't express out outside the kitchen, but they could express inside the kitchen. And uh, you know, because the South is what the South was. Yeah. And, um, so you know, in that essay, I talk about how I feel like that a grew up and I learned to, um, have sort of a, a woman consciousness, you know, it really rooted me in, you know, in, into my, um, uh, in my mind and heart, um, this, uh, uh, woman way of looking at the world and, um, sort of expresses, uh, I think I expressed myself in my poetry, um, uh, in a lot of ways, it has a, a very definite, uh, feminine side. You know, I, I lived in Memphis and, you know, growing up I'd laugh because, you know, we felt like, uh, we didn't ever have anything to do, but Friday night we might go hear Bo Diddley down at the clear pool. Wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, we would, and I, you know, I drank too much. I did everything, you know, I was, was not the world's greatest kid. Um, uh, and actually none of us were. And, um, uh, that was from a lack of a, a father in our family. I always say that, you know, black music, you in know, a, in a lot of ways saved my life. It taught us kids, white boys in the South. It taught us about sex. It taught us that sex was not, not, you know, a, you know, a thing to uh, be afraid of and something to celebrate. And it, it taught us about sorrow and blues and all this sort of stuff. So,
0: you mentioned Bo Diddley. What, what were the other? Um, what were the other musicians that you that were really influential to you back then?
1: Oh, uh, uh, you know, you we, Little Richard. You know, uh, oh, Jimmy. Wow. Yeah, Reed. Uh, uh, you know, we knew this guy, Furry Lewis. You know, who who uh, was rediscovered in the sixties and seventies. Who was a street cleaner in Memphis, and uh, we never see. And then the guy I remember. One of the great scenes in my memory is uh, there was a guy named Larry something. I can't remember his last name. Uh, he, he was uh, he was the guy who sang uh, uh, Boney Maroney, which I, was a song I loved. And he was playing. There was this uh, uh, place out in the uh, at a country club called the Clearpool Lounge, Bar, and they had a big showroom and where we could all go dance and. They, uh fraternities or sororities would hire it out. And they'd bring in these these uh, performers. So one night, you know, I must have been in the tenth uh, or eleventh grade. Must have been the tenth grade. So this is like nineteen fifty-seven or fifty-eight. This guy's singing and stuff. And at the at the end of the at the end of the performance, everybody's drinking and raising hell. And and um, uh, at the end. Uh, he sings Boni Maroney, I think it was. And he's and he's this young black guy, you know, and he's real handsome, and everybody's just sweating and 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 enjoying themselves, and you know, it's this sort of, you know, really a sort of epiphany, and, and and this guy, first he pulls off, and he's wearing everything's in white, and he pulls off his uh, coat and throws it down on the stage, and then. And then he pulls off his his uh, white shirt and, you know, he has a t-shirt underneath, but he pulls off his white shirt and he starts twirling it over his head and everybody's going nuts. And he's twirling his shir- shirt and then he throws it into the crowd. And you know, it, well, <laughs> it was amazing. All those uh, white girls just went bananas trying to get that shirt. They were just like this... This, you know, this incredible reaching for this shirt, ripping at it, and stuff, and it was like, oh, oh, you know, this is like, you know, you could sort of feel all these walls, sort of, you know, that we were had grown up with, all these walls sort of tumbling down, and these ladies were all, you know, uh, raised in so-called good homes, you know, they're Baptist, Methodist, they're all that sort of stuff, but they had this energy that the, 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 the music back then sort of just undone everybody was sort of untying their shoelaces everything was becoming a lot freer and it was it was a great 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 experience Seventeen. We found this one great bar called the Dew Drop Inn, where on one side, uh, all the uh, on the larger side, the black men and women sat, and then on the on the smaller side, uh, the uh, was where the white sat, and and I mean, it was mostly boys, you know, seventeen or sixteen. And um, one time the one time the the lady came. Her name was God, Flora. Flora something. She came in and said, "Okay, is anybody?" First, she went into the to the black side and said, um, well, "I hate to make this announcement, but if any of you are wanted by the police, you know you should go back in the in the back." And so, all these about four or five men got up and walked back into the stand-up cooler. And then she walked to our side, and then she said, if any of you guys are underage, you should walk back in the back, you know. So here we were in the stand-up uh, cooler in the back, about four or five, <laughs> four or five young kids and all these guys we were wanted by the police. And we just sat back there and talked and laughed until the police left. <laughs> it was like, oh. And, you know, I, I just, I, you know, you know, that's that's where I got my politics from. That's where I got all sorts of stuff from. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was teaching at Memphis State when Martin Luther King was killed. And uh, I had marched with him and several things, you know, marches that one had uh, broken into a riot. And, you know, the, when the town was in martial law and stuff. So it was, it was an incredible place to grow up. But it's odd, you know when you're going through all that stuff, you know, you don't think of it like that.
0: Yeah. For, for me, I, I always think of the 1950s as being kind of a, a repressed time in history, but but it wasn't. In many ways, in certain pockets of the country, it, it really wasn't. You know, this was, people were rebelling against that sort of repression and conservative ideals, and I think maybe Memphis might have been one of those, one of those centers for that kind of expression.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it, it was it was a time where you know you could see the sort of the rips in their fabric, just sort of falling apart. You know, yeah, it's been torn. in you know, it, it blossomed uh, fully in the '60s. You know, with the all the stuff, and uh, you know, with the Summer of Love and all that stuff. So it was it was actually a very interesting time. Yeah,
0: let's let's maybe make the transition now. You you mentioned the '60s, and uh, I, I would definitely want to get into. I guess this backtracks a little bit, but you mentioned in, in many of your books and writings that you were inf- influenced by the beat generation of poets, and um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how, uh, how you discovered that, uh, you know, growing up in Memphis, and, and then how that movement, what that movement meant to you as a, as a young, uh, burgeoning poet and writer.
1: You know, when I was growing up to be a, a be a poet, was sort of like you know I sort of hid the fact that I was a poet, and I had a great fr- uh, uh, friend, friend, uh, Harvey Goldner, who, who was real brilliant. He's dead now. Uh, who was a brilliant young man, and he he would he started showing me books, you know, and, and you know the library the library had uh, recordings of of you know on, on vinyl. Recordings of the San Francisco Renaissance and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and they had a recording of Hal, and we would go sit down there in the listening room and listen to to all these great recordings. And, you know, Harvey had been getting the Evergreen Review, and um, I remember one, I, there was this excerpt in the Evergreen Review of John Retchi's City of Night, and, and, you know, City of Night, and it turns out John Retchi, it's from El Paso down in the barrio, but it was the, one of the first, uh, it was the, probably the first really great um, gay novel in the United States. It was a wonderful novel. And that, I, I remember being just sort of uh, uh, overwhelmed by that excerpt, and then when I had the opportunity to read the novel, by, you know, to uh, see this this total, this beautiful expression of another uh, lifestyle that was so foreboding and untalked about, yeah, in, in the South or anywhere for that matter, yeah. And it, it was a beautiful, beautiful uh, novel, and it sort of changed my life. It sort of opened up another door where I could, you know, I could accept this other sort of lifestyle in my life. It wouldn't wouldn't hurt. And actually, and the black music again made that possible. I think you know, it's just sort of like you know the music and the and the that sensibility sort of. Was such forgiving in so many ways. I think.
0: So, uh, growing up in Memphis, uh, you you eventually left Memphis, and uh, you you know you've been based there in El Paso since the seventies or late seventies, I guess. Um, where did you go
1: in in between? Well, in between, I went to uh, I went to the University of Arizona, and then I went to uh, uh, I got my master's at the University of of, of Washington, and in the midst of at uh, the end of University of Arizona and the beginning of Washington, I went to—I had a great, great uh, teacher. Actually, you might know who it is, uh, 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 Barney Childs.
0: Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about that. I read that in your essay, and I thought, Barney Childs? Surely that's not—that's Barney Childs, the composer, Barney Childs. <laughs>
1: that's right. That's Barney Childs, the composer.
0: Well, you mentioned this in your essay that I guess it was the fo- first poem you handed in and he just tossed it in the garbage can. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> he, was a, he was a grump. You know, he was a Ro- had <laughs> been a Rhodes Scholar and stuff. And he was a grump, but he was this brilliant guy. He's one of these guys who people, myself included, were afraid of, but at the same time, he had this sort of um, wonderful heart. And he had the best ear of anybody uh, I've ever uh, known.
0: I didn't realize that he taught poetry.
1: Well, he taught, yeah, he taught poetry, he, and he was a poet. As he would tell you, he was a very shitty poet. And uh, his <laughs> I forgot his I forgot the name of his 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 teacher had been this at, at Stanford. His teacher had been sort of a real conservative poet who he liked. Uh, his name will come soon. But he he when he was when he was in England, I guess I guess he got into. Uh, com- uh, composition, you know, earlier, but he then he taught at as you know one of those little schools out in the wilderness. You know, he was the dean and he he did all sorts of weird stuff. But I and it, uh, he had a student that became a very uh, important composer. I can't re- seemed like his name was Bird too. But anyway, he was my teacher, and I was very honored. And, and he liked my poetry. Uh, after about two or three months after that. Event that talk about in the book, where he uh, tossed the poem in the in the garbage. The, yeah. the next the next thing he said after he read a poem, he says, "Well, Bird has learned how to Bird has learned how to write a poem. He just doesn't have anything to say." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I just I'm just pulling up some information on Barney Childs. I, you know, I of course know Bar- Barney Childs from his music and sort of avant-garde music using, you know, very much influences like uh, Cage and Charles Ives and using a lot of in, in, indeterminacy in his music and uh that that's how I knew Barney Childs, but I see here yeah that he was uh taught English literature.
1: Or Winters was his teacher.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, but but he taught English literature at University of Arizona from 56 to sixty five right and here's the person you were talking about he was the mentor to the young Joseph Byrd right yeah. okay whom i, whom I don't I, I don't know I'm sad to say
1: he you know he, but he was a great teacher and he was the guy who introduced me to all these other people okay so he introduced me to like uh, uh, you know the the, the the people everybody read were Ginsberg and, and Kerouac and and then Snyder and then so he and Duncan a little bit. But yeah. then he introduced me to Philip Whalen and, and all these other guys, uh, Paul Blackburn especially, who became a very close friend and mentor to me. And um, he you know, Jackson McClough, you know Jackson McLean, who was sort of a contemporary at next generation after John Cage, uh, who was also a poet besides being a composer. And so, uh, so Barney found out about this Aspen Writers Workshop in the summer. So, and Paul Blackburn was there, and he suggested I go. And so I went up there, and I actually became close friends with. Uh, it was run by Robert Vastias, but Paul was there, and also Toby Olson. And and Paul and Toby became very close friends of mine, and sort of uh, mentored me, especially Paul. And, you know, Paul was a really, really a a wonderful poet and a wonderful guy. But also, when we were there, that went back the next year, not as a student, but just to be a hanger-on. And I I got to meet my wife, my future wife, Lee Bird, Lee Merrill. And uh, she, you know, we've been together since then. That was the summer between 67 and 68. stayed in contact with Paul, and Paul got me connected to a lot of the New York poets, and he you know he it was through him that I got my first book published by a press called Grocery Testy books in um in england
0: so uh and eventually you made your way to El Paso, where you started your own um publishing company
1: right you know we lived in Colorado for you know we were not happy we were happy you know we had a kid and, and our oldest daughter Susie was born in. Colorado, Johnny Bird was born in Albuquerque, Andy was uh, born in uh, Las Cruces, so we're slowly moving down the river, <laughs> and, and everybody had always told us not to to uh, El Paso. But I started when we lived in Las Cruces, and we weren't very happy. I started coming down here, and it's a wonderful city. You know? It's a street city on the during the week, you know, because of all the Mexicanos that come across. You know, Spanish is being spoken all over the place in the central part of the city. You can walk over to Juárez, and you know, actually be in a different country. I mean, it's it's weird how real different, you know, it's how foreign Juárez is compared compared to say London, you know. So, you know, I had all this sort of stuff, and it was very, very exciting. So we we put down roots here, and we raised our kids. And 81, our two boys were burned very seriously in, in a fire. Uh, and it was an event that sort of changed our lives. And really, uh, I, I was working at Fort Bliss as a technical writer. And, um, you know, they were hurt real bad. They're both doing incredibly well now. They're both... Uh, Outstanding young men. They're not young. Johnny's a middle-aged, in forties. So after that, you know, it sort of pulled pulled the rug out from under us, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and um, they were always they, the Shriners took care of them. They were in the Andy was in the hospital for three months, and they were always going back and forth for for in Galveston for operations. Oh, wow. So about that. Richard Grossinger and his wife, Lindy Huff of North Atlantic, did a book of mine called Here, H-E-R-E. So they invited us out, and it must have been 83, invited us out to Berkeley to read. And we read, I went out to read, and we learned about publishing from them. And they were making this halfway decent living. And uh, we thought, well, hell, we can do this. And, of course, we didn't realize, you know, we lived, they lived in Berkeley. We lived, on the other hand, in El Paso. But we knew writers, and we started doing books. And the the business sort of grew organically one book, book at a time. We found out real quickly that you can't do poetry books, you know, because you don't make any money. But yeah. we still do them every once in a while, especially mine, when I can talk my son and my daughter, my wife into publishing a book. With them. So, you know, that's what we've been doing. And, you know, I tell people that uh, publishing is like writing. It's probably like you're, you're Percussion also music is it? It's a form of self-discovery, and so you know it's you know uh, publishing has taken me and really influenced my poetry in a lot of ways. It's taken me in my imagination and uh, many places that I would not have gone uh, if I hadn't been doing, um, if I had just remained a a poet, especially if I had stayed in the university
0: well uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that. How do you choose authors for your publishing uh, company?
1: well actually you know it turns out that Lee is probably one of the best, best um, editors in the United States but you know we choose things by books that we like and first you know it started off um, we published friends that we knew and you know then their work you know would attract others. and so, and we and we did children's books we did bilingual books and and by doing a back bilingual book back in the 80s it sort of was like a real political statement so they started getting us more political books and publishing became sort of a you know some, sort of an organic process and you know we've won a lot of awards in fact we're up at the American Library Association this week we're up at uh, being considered for Several um, very very big awards. It all depends on whether we like it or not, you know. Yeah. And it's you know you, you can, you know you can hear an authentic voice, you know I'm sure you can too, you know in, in your art, you know yeah. that you, you can recognize an authentic voice or somebody who's just school learned, you know, it hadn't hadn't gotten outside uh, the 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 boundaries of, of what they've learned in this in in the uh, from a book or in a school or whatever. So, you know, that's all important.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think that's—you <clears throat> you struck on something there um, that that definitely resonates with me, and something that, that strikes me about your work is that it, it, it definitely hits a note of truth in how you're able to sort of perfectly convey, the, from from sort of my own experience of the attitude and local flavor— of West Texas and specifically that, that borderland of El Paso. And it's, it's sort of an interesting place to be. Um, You know, now when we look on the news and uh, you know, I see on NPR every now and then uh, stories about Juarez and the, the, the war that's happening, you know, with this, all the violence and the drug trafficking and, and gangs. And it looks like a pretty scary place to be.
1: Oddly enough, El Paso is this, over the last four or five years has been one of the, either the top or the second or third safest city in the United States, which is something Mm. like Rick Perry doesn't know.
0: Uh, (laughs) Well, not to get political. There's probably a lot of things Rick Perry doesn't know.
1: (laughs) I could quote him and say, oops. So, (laughs) So, uh, the, uh, but, um, the board has changed because of all the, the all this stuff. Because it's been it's, it's being slowly militarized. I guess it's sort of like a, remember Al Gore talking about the the frog and the in that movie. The inconvenient truth is that you know if you, if you put a frog in the water and just slowly raise the temperature, he'll not know that he's boiling.
0: Right, that. right.
1: But if you just drop him in, um, you know you. Uh, he'll jump right out. Yeah. So uh, the I think what's happening to the United States on the other side, you know, is that that sense of lawlessness, lawlessness in in Mexico, in mordida and bribes and stuff. When the money got so so big, you know, it became sort of uh, a vacuum, and people could act with impunity, you know, because the the cops were. Hired by the, either the army or you know they're all everybody was in league to sell drugs, and then on this side you know we we got more and more border patrol and more all this high tech equipment that I think uh, I think it had sort of a calming you know it had sort of a, a opposite effect you know so that you, we don't have that sort of easy back and forth to Wattis that we used to have although it's getting better now I, I go to Wattis, walk over there pretty regularly, but it's real difficult to get back. If you're walking, it's not too bad, but if you're driving, it's just real hard to get back. So, you know, it's, it's it's sort of sad that way, but, you know, I see my friends from over there and we talk and, you know, there are a lot of, you know, there's still, you know, especially when artists, actually, especially in the visual arts, and actually in music also, There's, there's been some remarkable things happen here in, in the El Paso wadis region. Yeah, like, but you know, it's it's so nice to be among um, people speaking Spanish all the time. It, it, yeah, it always it changes your ear. You know, it changes the way you you listen, and uh, you know, it's it's just you can you hear things so so much differently, and it's it's such a pleasure. You know,
0: well, one of the things that uh, you captured in this book, I, I really love, is the the price of doing business in Mexico. There's a poem. Called the United States of America. I wonder if uh, you might talk a little bit about that poem. Maybe, maybe even read it for us.
1: United States of America. Adolfo Rodriguez is a Mexican. He never really wanted to come to the United States of America. He never wanted his children speaking a language he didn't understand, would never understand. He didn't want the alcoholism that came with his friends, his brother, the long hours after work on the roofing crew, drinking the night away. He didn't want the strange men babbling furious Spanish and tearing at him with their fists, then knives. He didn't want to witness his own bloody, drunken sorrow curled into a broken body. He didn't want his son seeing him like that measuring him against other men, cursing him for his weakness. He never wanted the diabetes eaten at his flesh and soul like a horde of ants, slowly until he was only a shell of the handsome man who married his beloved wife. He didn't want his beautiful black eyes to drip with the bitter tears into the thick grass of his gringo neighbor's yard, he never wanted to come here. He came anyway. Lo hice para el dinero, he said. The money, siempre el dinero. And for his wife and kids, they were the ones who wanted to come. Boy, that's cool, that's,
0: that's just such a melancholy um, and... it's just sad it's a sad poem um and but it does in a sense at least to me capture this sort of immigrant experience that that i'm sure you see on a daily basis uh living where you live
1: right you know uh in our country uh we think everybody wants to be here and um and they don't, you know. They they love their, they love where they're from. They love their language. You know, it's their roots, and so there are a lot of people who like are, this, uh, his actual real name was Arturo. Um, was uh, he never wanted to be here? You know, he had you know had family on the other side, and he never did learn to uh, speak English. And his you know his kids loved him, you know, but they were around the dinner table. were was to mock him for not knowing how to speak, and of course, it sort of cut cut out his uh, cut out his uh, wage earning ability. Meanwhile, his wife could actually m- learn the English, and she was making more money than he did. Yeah. So that that was another thing that was sort of drove him into this this sort of depression. Um, and so, I think there. You know, and other people who actually do succeed over here. There was there was a movie, and they were asking this guy why he came to the United States, and he would lost his job when PMAX had closed down. And he said, "Well, you know, I understand the Americans now won't the, the, them not wanting me over on that side, but you know, I got my uh, family, and you know, I understand their laws, but I got my family, and my law is that I have to feed my family." Yeah. So, you know, there's an enormous amount of money. It's probably money that people send back to the uh, to Mexico or to wherever. Actually, in, in, in you know, uh, in along the border and places like New York City, where there's large immigrant communities, there's a big business of, of people uh, uh, made possible because people are sending their. Money back to their loved ones in wherever country they came from, and it, you know, if at one time it was like one of the largest, it was a large percentage of the Mexican gross national product of the money that was coming in. Yeah, I, I think it's good for a, uh, a writer, good for an artist to to witness, uh, experience the friction of, of places like this. Yeah, to be on the streets and to and to see. You know to see you know the suffering that, that people endure.
0: And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream: Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at that John Lane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook simply search for standing in the stream thanks to danny clay for our theme music you can find him online at dclaymusic.com i'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives thanks for listening